be in 1 Corinthians. If you have your Bible, make sure you turn there. But I'd like for, uh, for us to do a quick survey about a really important subject. At least it's really important in my house. And that is, who's your favorite superhero? All right, so here's how we're going to do this. It's going to be very scientific and, uh, and significant. I'm going to list two superheroes, and what I'll ask you to do is if you uh, like the first one, raise your hand. If you like the second one, don't. It's real simple, that, right, uh, that way, okay? Okay, so here we go. I'm going to list two superheroes. If you like the first one, raise your hand. The second one, just uh, sit there and don't fall asleep. All right, are we ready? Oh, boy, it's going to be a long day. Are you all ready? Okay, let's do this. All right, here we go. First pair of superheroes. Are you a fan of Superman, raise your hand, or Captain America? All right. Okay, very good. All right, here's our next one. Next set of superheroes. Are you a Batman kind of person or Wolverine? Oh, okay, well, there we go. We got some more uh, for, uh, for Wolverine. All right, good. Let me, uh, for, uh, for the ladies here, let's, uh, let's throw in some lady superheroes. Are you a Wonder Woman fan? All right, there's some out there. Or Black Widow? Up until about a few years ago, I wouldn't have even known who that was. And so uh, thank you, Marvel, for making movies. Uh, okay, very good. So, uh, so in my house, this is a pretty big, significant discussion. And even growing up, I remember this conversation uh, was, uh, was a big deal. You see, in my house, uh, there was one particular person, my father, who happens to be here today, that's right, uh, he was what you would know as a DC guy. That means all of the first characters that I listed were on his camp. My older brother, on the other hand, was a Marvel guy. That means the second set of characters were all in his camp. And I'm telling you, this was a significant source of controversy in our home as to whether or not the DC characters were real or the Marvel characters were real. Now, as a young man, about 10 or 11 years old, it was kind of confusing to me because I thought that none of them were real. I was pretty sure that it was all just made up. But the way the controversy went, you couldn't quite tell. You know, when it comes to our, our heroes, there's a dynamic that uh, tends to show up in our human hearts, and that is when, when we have a hero, it's, it's not enough that we like our hero. We want everybody else to like our hero as well. And so you see this play out as people uh, argue over which superhero they like, but but maybe even over which uh, athletic team you like. It might be that it's not just enough that you like Baylor, you want everybody else to like them too. And for you Texas A&M folks, you know this is the case. That's right, it's, uh, <laughs> it's not enough just that you like it, you, you impose that on all of us too. So this is just our dynamics. It's, it's something inside of us that when, when we've got a hero, somebody that we, uh, we're really passionate about, it's not enough just for us to, to like it. We want everyone else to like that hero as well. Well, what we're going to see today in 1 Corinthians is that when you have competing heroes, you begin to see a dynamic of relationships getting pulled apart. Now, we've talked about some silly examples of superheroes and sports teams, but we're going to look at some pretty serious ones as we look together at God's Word. But the, the truth is... 
when, when relationships begin to tear apart, when divisions start to happen, at the core, oftentimes what's really happening is you have two different people or two different groups or two different churches who at their core have really grabbed hold of two different heroes. And what we're going to hear from the Apostle Paul today as we continue our journey through 1 Corinthians is three commands for what we should do when we recognize that those relationships are tearing apart. Are you all ready? All right, let's get to work. We're going to read first from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. You'll find this on your notes and also on the screen. We're just going to read the first verse this morning as we get started. Let's read it together. Now I urge you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. Thank you. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so the first command that we see Paul giving when relationships are pulling apart is to keep the main thing the main thing. This wasn't an academic discussion for the Apostle Paul. He was writing to a church that was being ripped apart, not just by two groups, but by multiple groups. And if you've got your Bibles, make sure you're open to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, because you're going to see some of these groups here in a second. But as Paul begins to weigh into this church, he says to them, keep the main thing the main thing. Now, what Paul is advocating for here is not just some sort of surface unity where everybody uh, just, uh, just wants to get along. As a middle child, uh, that was kind of my motto, was uh, can't we all just get along? Do we really have to fight over all of this? Uh, I was uh, pretty good at trying to uh, make things just easy. But the fact of the matter is, what, what Paul's driving us to is not to act like a middle child and just make the conflicts go away and we can just all get along. He's driving for a kind of unity that goes really, really deep. And it looks, and you can see it right here in these words that he uses. Look in verse 10. I urge you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and in the translation that I'm reading, he talks about the first level of unity, that all of you agree in what you say. Now, I know some of your translations aren't going to have that phrase, in what you say, and that's okay, but you need to know that in Greek, it's a very specific word there. He's using an expression that would have also applied in political context. It's, it's similar uh, to our current day time where we might say a political party has a platform. There's a list of, of key ideas or arguments or positions that make up what that political platform is. That's what Paul's pointing to here. He's saying, agree in, in the basic words, in what you are going to be uniting around. This isn't just don't fight or don't have arguments or disagreements. He's driving them to make sure that at the level of their words, they're on the same page, but not just with their words because he keeps driving deeper. Uh, he goes on, Let, that there be no divisions among you and that you be united and then again in my translation, with the same understanding and the same conviction. 
The two Greek words that lay behind that are the reason why our translations will vary on this one, because translators are wrestling with how do you communicate in English what's being said about these next two levels of unity that Paul's calling to. When he says that we are to be united with the same understanding, he's calling here that for us to have a, the same mindset, that is, the same way of thinking about a particular issue, with the same way of thinking about what the main thing is. But then he goes on and says that we're to be united with the same conviction. Here he's talking about the root level of of values. That's why some translations will, will translate this as judgment, have the same judgment about you. What we're trying to get at here is Paul saying the kind of unity that we're supposed to be aiming for when we keep the main thing the main thing is not a sort of surface let's all get along, but rather a deep core heart level unity. Because we say the same thing, we, we are thinking in the same kind of way. We're attacking the subject in the same kind of way. And even at the level of our feelings and affections, our values are united. This is a big call for this church that is splitting in all kinds of directions. And it's a big call for us because it's easy for us in our personal relationships, in marriage or with our kids or at work, to not drive for this kind of unity, but rather to be satisfied with just not having another argument. But the kind of unity that Paul calls us towards here is a unity that comes when we keep the main thing the main thing. And it's a unity that goes down deep into our hearts. It's possible for two people in a marriage. It's possible for a group of people in a church to have that kind of unity when they keep the main thing, the main thing. And what is that main thing? Well, he points us to it right here in this opening verse. Now I urge you, brothers, and here it comes, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is it that is supposed to be uniting this church? Well, what Paul argues is it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you ought to feel the underline there. Because if you're reading starting in verse 1, and, and remember what, when Paul did this, he would send a letter and a group of churches like this, people would get together, and then this was read to them as a letter from Paul. That's what's happening. And at this point, if we were reading from verse 1 all the way down to verse 10, this would be the seventh time that Paul talks about the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see what he's doing? If you come through this, what he's saying to these people is he's going to tell them, you've got to keep the main thing the main thing, and then in case they miss it, from the very beginning all the way down to this section, he's reiterating what the main thing is. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's why our baptism confession as that second question, do you promise to follow Jesus for the rest of your life? What we are, what the promise that we're making in baptism is to say, I acknowledge Jesus not just as my Savior, but as my Lord. He will be my master. He will be my leader. 
my boss. And when I'm not sure what to do, I'm going to look at what he does. And when, when my desires conflict with what he says, he wins. That's what Lord means. And so Paul is pointing this church to what the main thing is. It is to keep Jesus as Lord. But the reality is, this church has not kept Jesus as Lord. If you look down into verse 11, you begin to see the evidence that there are competing lords or masters at work for them. Paul goes on and says, It has been reported to me about you, my brothers, by members of Chloe's household, that there is rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this. Each of you says, I'm with Paul, or I'm with Apollos, or I'm with Cephas, or I'm with Christ. Is Christ divided? Was it Paul who was crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? Do you see what, what he's doing? He's highlighting for them the different lords that had begun to show up in this Corinthian church. And he says, when, when you have this kind of thing happening, when you've forgotten what the main thing is, you've forgotten that Jesus is Lord, and you begin to grab hold of other smaller lords, inevitably, your community will begin to be torn apart. And he uses this word rivalry or divisions. In Greek, it's the word schismata. And it's a, it's a picture of what happens when you take a shirt and, and you tear it. It's, a, it's tearing a garment. It's supposed to be uh, knitted together to form one whole unit. That's what a shirt is. But a schism is when you rip it apart and you open up a new hole that's not supposed to be there. I, I have a, a history of taking hold of shirts or articles of clothing that probably should have been thrown away and keeping them longer than I ought to have, uh, much to my wife's uh, frustration. Uh, when we first got married, I had a shirt from high school that I wore uh, when I was playing high school basketball. And it was my favorite shirt to wear around the house. Um, I'd wear it um, out mowing the grass, and then I'd uh, wash it, and then I'd wear it again. And, and I, I remember her saying, you know, that shirt is getting really ratty. Um, and by that, she meant there were holes starting to emerge in it. Um, and I told her, well, it's, uh, it's fine. It's just uh, air conditioning. That's what, uh, that's what the holes are, are for. I, I liked the shirt. I'd had it for a long time. I didn't want to get rid of it. And she, she started to make little, little comments here and there about, you know, it might be time to let go of that. And I'd learned at this point in our marriage that from this point on, I was going to need to make sure that I did the laundry with this shirt. <laughs> because more than once, things had just somehow disappeared um, if uh, someone else did the laundry. And so I protected my shirt. I would wash it and, and make sure that it got back in my drawer so I could keep wearing it. Uh, well, one day, I think I was playing with Zachary as a toddler, and we were rolling around wrestling on the floor, and he grabbed hold of my shirt, and you can imagine the sound. <laughs> Just ripped the side right down. And Christy looked at me, and she didn't say a word. <laughs> and I thought, it's still okay. It's... Um, I could still wear it, but then I wasn't sure what was supposed to be my head or the armhole, and I had to have a ceremonial moment where I laid it in the trash and let go of my shirt. 
When a, when a shirt gets torn, it's not that it just stays torn a little bit. Uh, this, this tearing in a garment uh, won't stay there. It'll, if it continues to have pressure, it's going to get worse. And, and eventually, if that tearing continues, it'll make the garment useless, right? Well, so what Paul is saying here is you, you can't keep tearing at the shirt. The, the, the second command to, to, to pay attention to when you recognize that relationships, uh, whether it's with your spouse or friend or at work or at church, when you recognize that the tearing is forming, don't tear it anymore. He calls them to say, stop what you're doing. Stop tearing at this thing. It's time to start working towards healing, towards bringing it back together. Now, the fact of the matter is, that there are significant issues that face our church and churches like ours across this nation. And now here, let's just, let's just talk honestly about uh, one of these issues that is tearing churches and denominations apart. It's the issue of how to handle whether or not same-sex sexuality is moral. This is an issue that churches are making decisions about and people are making decisions about. And it is, it is tearing churches and denominations apart. This is a, a very sad thing. It's something we ought to pay attention to. It's something that we can't afford to ignore in our own lives, in our own families, and even in our church. It's not, not fun to talk about but we've got to decide. If, if we're going to keep the main thing the main thing and agree in word and how we think and in our values, this is deep unity. This is not sort of surface unity. Then we've got to wrestle with this. And we have to wrestle with this especially now because this is not a debate any longer between those people out there who don't believe Jesus, who, um, who aren't Christians, and those who are. That's not where we're at. The reality is now it is people who both claim Jesus as Lord who are arriving at different decisions about what to do about this issue. And so you'll have some churches who will take a stance to say, we will be welcoming and affirming that is affirming of same-sex sexual behavior. And let me be clear, we're talking about the behavior, not an identity or a, a sense of desire, the behavior. There are churches that are affirming that behavior as moral. We're not there as a church at Columbus Avenue. Now, we had this conversation several years back, and, and we decided that that our, our consciences would be bound first to God's Word. And God's Word is, is just clear on this particular subject. So the stance that we have taken is to say, we're going to be welcoming. And y'all, you need to know that. We are welcoming. There are people here even now who experience same-sex attraction, and that's, that we're welcome. You're here. We're welcome. This is where you're supposed to be. We're supposed to come together here. Our church is welcoming of everybody regardless of where you come from and your background and what experiences have shaped you. You're welcome here. But what we are not saying is we're not going to affirm as moral that which the Bible has called immoral. And that means it's not just about issues of sexuality. 
It's issues of pride and greed. We're, gonna, we're not going to affirm those either. The truth is, all of us ought to be in here and at some point not feeling affirmed because the Bible calls us to Jesus as Lord, and as He is Lord, He will begin to point out places in each one of us that He's going to say, you have to choose. Will I be Lord, or will your own personal desire and experience and wisdom be Lord? All of us will face this. It's not just on the issue of sexuality. All of us will face this issue. This is the position that our church has taken. But other churches, people who claim the name of Christ, believers, they've adopted a different kind of position. And you just need to be prepared. You need to know that that's where they're at. But you also need to know that when you begin to dive down deep, what, what I have found is that oftentimes at the, the root of the argument to affirm the behavior as moral is another hero. At the root of the argument is another authority, another Lord. And it often will sound like we've learned to listen to other voices. We, have, uh, we are we're not denying the Bible's authority, but we are recognizing the authority, the experiences of other Christians. This is the point at which we say we're not united there. Because while all of us have personal experiences that shape us, and all of us have personal desires with which we wrestle with and, and must bring under the authority of Jesus, we are not in a position to elevate our personal experience or desires alongside or over the authority of Jesus. We're just not free to do that. And so that's why for our church, we've said we're we can't go there. We can love and respect and, and have friendship with folks who do, but for us, that's not where we're at. We have said Jesus is Lord, and there can only be one Lord, and He has revealed Himself in the Bible, and the Bible affirms only two expressions of sexuality. One, between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. And two, sexual celibacy. Now, we might not like that. You might not want that, but that's just what it is. And so the choice is for all of us, regardless of your experiences and your sense of attraction, the question for all of us is who will be Lord? Who will be the big hero who will ultimately win between those competing desires. Do you begin to see why this begins to tear at churches and families and relationships? Because at the core, there has to be a, a decision that's made. You can't force that on somebody else. You can't make them get there. But what we have said is, as our community of faith, we're going to unite around Jesus as our final authority, as he's expressed himself in the Bible. Now, for those of you on television, you're going to miss the next part. And so I just want you to feel free to jump online and watch it there or to watch the recording. 
because I'm not done offending the people in this room. <laughs> All right, are you ready? Let's talk about another area that divides churches like ours. And I know we're going to go a little late. It's okay. Uh-huh. It's, it's music. You know this happens, right? I'm not, uh, I'm not telling you something you don't know. Music has a way of dividing churches. And, and here's, here's the part that I need you to hear. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this. There's the part that I need you to hear. It's, it's a very similar argument on the issue of worship style and music as it is on the morality of same-sex sexual behavior. Now hear me, follow me. Two very different issues, but when you begin to bear down and you begin to talk about these values and convictions, the way we think about things, what you'll begin to hear is someone say, I just can't worship with that kind of music. And, and, and let me tell you, it's not always in this room. I hear it from that room too, okay? So we're all on the same page on this, right? Everybody's saying, uh, this is the instinct of our hearts. I just can't worship with that kind of music on all sides. All right? Here's what the Bible says. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. If you say, I can't worship God with that music, or I can only worship God with this kind of music, what you have done is you have made your music your mediator. And your music cannot mediate between you and God. Only Jesus Christ can. It's the same argument. My personal experiences, my background, lead me to desire this. If you allow your desires or personal experiences or backgrounds to be the ultimate and final authority, you are denying Jesus that place. Okay, so I've offended everybody, right? It's just here in the Bible. I don't know what else to tell you. I don't want to say this to you. I'm a middle child, and I want to say, let's just all get along. I'm all for the surface unity. Let's just, uh, let's just not talk about the hard stuff and keep after it. But we just don't have that option. The Apostle Paul calls us to a deep unity, which forces us to face head-on issues where we have differences in our experience and backgrounds and desires. And it forces all of us to choose to subordinate our personal experience and desire to the authority of Jesus Christ. We keep the main thing the main thing. We don't tear at the shirt further. We recognize when it's my heart that is chasing after another hero. And then lastly, We get our center in the right place. The way I've listed it here is cross-center the people, cross-center the church. 
Maybe you remember uh, another hero show with the slogan, save the cheerleader, save the world. Okay, like two people got that, but that's okay. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, if we want a church centered on the main thing, it will only happen when we have people centered on the main thing. This church will only be centered on the cross of Jesus Christ when you and I decide that he will be the center. And Paul gives us a great example of this struggle. He had to decide to make Jesus the center. He lists his name over and over again in this controversy. Uh, uh, was Christ divided? Was it Paul who was crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? You see, he recognized that he could have come out on top on this one. But he also knew that he had to put his own preference and desire second to Jesus. And he also pointed to the truth that even something as big as baptism wasn't big enough. It wasn't big enough to hold this church together. In verse 17, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to evangelize. Not with clever words, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. Baptism is a big deal. But Paul says, that's not what I came for. That's not what I called you to center your church around. And here's what it's going to take for us as a church uh, for you in your marriages or in your families, when you face these moments where things are tearing you apart and you drive down deep, it's going to require that you find something or someone big enough to be at the center. Uh, think about it this way. Uh, do you know why it is that the earth spins around the sun? It's just us, no, guys. No one on TV right now. Why is it that the earth spins around the sun? Gravity, right? The sun is big enough that it pulls all the smaller objects into orbit around it. The sun, according to NASA, is 1,000 times bigger in mass, larger in mass than Jupiter. It's 300,000 times greater in mass than the earth. That great mass causes everything else to spin around it. Now, here's how that picture helps us. When we try to center our life on sexuality or on, we try to center our worship on a style of music, we've got a good thing. These are good gifts that God's given us. These are great gifts that God's given us. But they cannot, they don't have enough mass to center our lives or our church or our society nor your family. They're not big enough. You need something with greater mass. So that's why Paul says, you've got to have the Lord Jesus Christ as the center. He's the only one big enough and glorious enough and wise enough and powerful enough that all the other aspects of life can orbit around him. And so here's the question that each of us have to wrestle with. What's at the center? Who is the real hero, the big hero? 
around whom all the others orbit. When you experience relationships tearing apart, it ought to be a moment for you to pause and ask the question, who's at the center of me? Am I trying to orbit around something that's just too small? Or have I found Jesus and his cross to be my center? Let's pray. Father, we, we recognize that our own hearts, we want to be the center, Father. We want, we want our own selves to be the center of this universe. And so we just together, we confess that as sin. We confess it as a rejection of Jesus. And we ask that in your mercy, would you begin to open our eyes and orient our hearts around the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, would you expose Would you expose the places in us that are just too small to keep our life in orbit, but that we've been trying? Would you begin to work healing in marriages, in families, in your church, as your people center their hearts on Jesus? Would you let his glory and fame grow. We pray this in his glorious and powerful and good and wise name. Amen.